Every year, Fordham University picks a new Denzel Washington chair in theater. This year, that honor goes to award-winning actor Michael Potts. He's joining the department faculty to offer the next generation of students positive influences. Good morning, I'm Robin Shannon. Today, Michael Potts joins Fordham Conversations by phone to discuss his career and his more notable roles, like that of Brother Muzone in The Wire, why he thought he'd never do a musical after Book of Mormons, and he offers advice for those trying to make it in the acting world. So, Michael, let's start with some background. How did you get started in acting? Uh, I mean, it was something that was always part of my life because of, uh, you know, the church. Growing up in a small town in the South, the church plays a huge part in your life. It's kind of the, the cultural center for this very small community. And so I was always doing, like, little Easter pageants and Christmas pageants and learning uh, what we used to call our speeches. Did you get your Christmas speech? Did you get your Easter speech? And it was basically poems based upon biblical verses or stories about, of course, uh, the birth of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. And so I had um, a grandmother who would always admonish me and tell me, I better be able to hear you. You stand up straight. You speak clearly. I'm going to be sitting in the back of the church. <laughs> don't, you, don't you go out there mumbling. Make us <laughs> so proud. She, Make us proud. Yes. Yeah, so she was really my first drama instructor. But it didn't get serious until around high school uh, when we did um, the Shakespeare Festival, which one of the um, – the Grady Locklear, who was the uh, advanced placement English teacher uh, at our high school, who believed himself to be a reincarnation of Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and so he staged these these Shakespearean festivals every year, basically doing excerpts from some of the plays. And in that particular year, I got to play the porter from Macbeth. And a Big role, role, big role. Yeah. Um, it's a sweet role. I mean, it's it's one of the great cameos in <laughs> Macbeth uh, uh, in that particular play. And uh, unbeknownst to me, a local drama teacher who had her own private studio had come to see the festival, and she had spoken to a, a classmate of mine who was one of her students and reached out to me and asked me to come and, and start working with her in her studio. And that was Katie Damron. And she was the first person to encourage me. Uh, her, she had a son who had, who had gone to Juilliard and, and was also a great mime and who had gone to study with Marcel Marceau. And she had had another student, Jake, who had also uh, studied at Juilliard. So she was pushing the Juilliard real hard. <laughs> but she was the one. I mean, she brought up Yale as well. So instead but, of um, getting a actor, we almost got a mime? Oh, no. He, that was never going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> he oh. was he was too good. I couldn't do that. <laughs> and so you decided to go to uh, Yale for acting. Yes, but that was only after uh, undergrad. Mm-hmm. I mean, I went to undergrad pretty much as uh, as a pre med to uh, because my mom was not keen on the idea of, of me becoming an actor. She wasn't very keen, and because since the age of about eight or nine, I had said I wanted to be a cardiologist. Um because I'd become in, in, inspired by the the story of the autobiography of Charles Drew, who's a black cardiologist. Mm-hmm. So I thought I would become a cardiologist. And, um, of course, my mother was very keen on that. Right. Her son, the doctor. Right. By all these, Grey's Anatomy, every medical journal she could find, she brought home. She'd come home from work with a book for me because <laughs> her son was going to be a doctor. And then suddenly, <laughs> around high school, he decided maybe not a doctor. 
And she was not having that one. She was not having it. She was not having it. So I went to uh, undergrad as a pre-med, but still felt the tug of it. And eventually, after I'd done with undergrad and I was working for the city, not terribly happy, but I still kept in touch with the, you know, keeping tabs on the performing arts. Were you and still I just, acting or had you actually given No, I acting? hadn't been acting at all. I had stopped completely. Right. And I just remember one summer I was in Oklahoma. I had also joined uh, the Army Reserve. And so I remember being stationed in Fort Sill, Oklahoma for my Office of Basic course and watching the Tonys that year. <laughs> on television, <laughs> very privately, <laughs> in, in my quarters. With the volume really, really low. Yeah, I'm watching the Tonys. Uh, Tony Awards, and that was the year that Fences was up for Tonys, and they had that amazing scene between James Earl Jones and Courtney Vance from that play. And I think it was that moment that I decided, yeah, I'm going to pursue this mm. for real. But you didn't tell mom right away. No, I didn't. No, I didn't. I mean, I researched. I tried to figure out because Courtney looked, was closest to my age. I mean, he's a little older than I was, but I saw it was a role I could possibly play. So I wanted to know how did, how did, where did he go to school? Mm-hmm. And I found out he'd gone to Yale. And so I because I'd been hearing Yale, <laughs> even in undergrad, I had a playwriting teacher who talked about Yale because he had once taught there. So I found out Courtney was going to Yale, so I decided to go to Yale. But I decided to do it sort of secretly as not to disturb my mother. <laughs> or, not to have, or not to have your mother disturb you. Oh, well, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I kind of did it all um, a bit in secret. And it was the only place I'd applied to because, you know, it, it had been me, um, lowly human, bargaining with God, trying to bargain, say, well, you know, if God, if this is meant for me, then I'll get into this school. And if it isn't meant for me, then you mean for me to pursue something else. And mom doesn't need to know either way. And mom doesn't need to know. (laughs) But guess what? I think God had other plans because you got to Yale. Other plans because I got into Yale. Yeah. Yeah. And now he made you face your mom. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, he did. He did. I told her I was very excited when I got the acceptance letter and I showed her and she read it and she was really excited. For about thirty seconds, and then the next word was, "Well, what are you going to do about your job?" <laughs> the practical woman that she the is. The practical woman, because and and you, I can understand that. Right. But how do you how do you become an actor if that's not how your, your experience? Right. I mean, she's a, she was a woman who grew up principally in the South. And there are certain things you did. You, 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 you know, you mm-hmm. came of age, you got a job, you got married, you had children and things like that. It was a whole generational kind of thing. And, and no one did, and, and I think to a certain extent still today, parents don't understand how does one become an actor. Right. Or what, what that is. They and want a steady paycheck. Most, they want to know yes, you can take care of yes, everything. And, you know, and, white and picket fence about, and all. Yeah, making sure you can take care of yourself. That's mm-hmm. what it is. But she came around. <laughs> she, she she came around. But she what did that conversation to... sound like? Oh, when, with my mom? Mm-hmm. When I first brought it up to her, well, we had the initial acceptance letter, and she went, how was the job? And then she didn't talk about it again for three weeks. <laughs> we just never, and I couldn't understand, and finally I remember I'd uh, gone uh, grocery shopping with her, and I just decided to confront her. Because you were soon it, going away. You're, you're yeah, going to leave for school Yeah, I, I wanted to confront her of, about it and why she was being so quiet and wasn't talking about it at all. 
And, you know, this is a tough thing. You grow up a, a Southern boy, you know, you respect your elders and you, <laughs> you respect mm-hmm. your mom. It's very difficult for me. You know, she and I were very close. It was very difficult to have a disagreement with her. And I just remember in the produce section, kind of us having it out <laughs> about me going to Yale. <laughs> she didn't think it was a good idea. Um, how are we going to pay for it? Um, you know, and I think she was hurt because she was looking forward to a doctor, <laughs> and that wasn't going to happen. So we kind of had it out, you know, a yeah. little bit of an argument, and we didn't talk about it very much. <laughs> and kept the safe subjects. Also, growing up, Michael, you spent some time, obviously, in the South, Southern boy, but you also kind of went back and forth between yeah. South Carolina and New York City. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. What what was going on there? You were visiting family, or how often um, did you no, go back and forth? No, what would happen is all, my, all of my elementary school was, schooling was done in South Carolina, and so I was with my maternal grandparents. My parents thought it would be better because they had a small farm, and so they thought that would, that was better for me to have that space because they were they were renting mm-hmm. in New York and so they were going from lease to lease to lease and I, my mother didn't want to move me around like that so she thought grow up in the fresh air and sun and on the farm blah 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 and then around junior high school she switched it because she knew the education system in New York was better than South Carolina and so she brought me back up to uh New York so I could for the be talking school years and summers back in in Carolina so I could be talking to Farmer Potts right now? Was it, was it <laughs> well, no, no, you wouldn't have been talking to Farmer Potts. <laughs> if you had spoken to my grandmother, she was telling you in a heartbeat. I was nobody's field hand or farmer. That was not going to happen. <laughs> oh, no. No, 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 no. So how do you think traveling back and forth from New York City to South Carolina, how do you think that influenced your journey? Well, it was, um, it was a bigger world coming to New York. I mean, I was, of course, it was a culture shock. Because it was totally different. In the South, in the small town, everyone knew you. <laughs> you knew every neighbor. To a certain extent, there was something communal. Everyone was uh, friendlier. And I felt New York was just a bit more aggressive <laughs> and threatening and intimidating because I didn't know. And there were far more dangers, in a sense. I, I remember <laughs> getting, um, I guess, what have they called it, mugged how many times? Did you? As a kid. But it was usually just bigger, older kids, bullies, who kind of could look at me and see a rube (laughs) that I was out of place. And so it was easier to kind of jump me. So I had to learn to toughen up in that way to realize that, um, you know, I think my my mom's younger brother, my uncle, would say, yes, your grandparents taught you to be a good person, (laughs) how to be a good, good person. And New York is teaching you how to live in the real world. Oh, because you need that combination, especially because you needed Mm. that combination because you never felt I never felt threatened. I mean, which is odd. I mean, growing up at my age, growing up in South Carolina, you know, incredibly and still is incredibly conservative state. A black boy growing up in South Carolina. Different kind of threat there. Different kind of threat. Mm. And I I just remember, I mean, I didn't hear the racial epithets so much in South Carolina. It was a very interesting thing. I mean, it, there was always this surface veneer of cordiality. Everyone referred to you by your name, or they referred to my grandparents by Mr. or Mrs. And um, Toss the bless, bless your heart behind that? All of that. Mm-hmm. All of that. You know, it took me years to realize, you know, it, it's performance and it's, it's a mask. 
but it was a, a mask of Southern hospitality and civility. And then you get to New York, and people just flat out calling you, hurling all kinds of pejoratives at you, which was shocking. This is Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. I'm Robin Shannon, and I'm joined by award-winning actor Michael Potts. He's the new Denzel Washington Chair in Theater. We're discussing his more notable roles, and he's also offering life advice for young actors. And, uh, Michael, I first became familiar with you as Brother Muzon in The Wire. Yeah. How, and that was a very big commercial success for you. How did you end up getting that role? Uh, um, that was something that uh, I wasn't expecting to get. That was a last-minute thing. They'd been trying to cast the role for a while. And uh, they were coming up to the episode they were going to shoot. And the casting director at that time, I said the story ironically is when the show was first being cast, before it even aired, I'd originally been called in for the character of Bubbles, which Andre Royo did so memorably. And I looked at that and I said, yes, he's Bubbles. I couldn't have done that. <laughs> I couldn't have done that as well as him. But I thought that was the end of it for, for me in that show. But they wanted to introduce this new character, and my agent convinced the casting director that I could play this character, Brother Mozone. She was not sure because, of course, she had seen me in other things and had seen me differently. But my agent just kept at it and said, no, 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 let Michael, let Michael. So they brought me in. I came in one sort of rainy day, and they put me on tape, and I thought that was the end of it. And three days later, I was called and told I was going to be going down to Baltimore the next week to shoot it. And I was like, oh, over the moon. <laughs> it was like, ooh, I'm going to get a TV thing. I read the script, I had one word. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> Everybody talked about the character. And my one episode, I had one word, officer. And I was like, oh, okay. Well, at least I'm on it. At least I've got a TV, another television credit, because it, it, it wasn't the big deal yet. It hadn't become The Wire yet. That was just sort of the second season. I had impressed them enough that they kept bringing me back. But you put your own spin on this character. Yes. You decided how he was going to be. You decided he was going to be extremely reserved, and, and you could tell he was an educated man. You can tell yeah. he had, but he was also deadly. So how did you come up with this, this character? <laughs> well, you, you know, some you, you get some clues from the script in terms, not necessarily, because he said so little. I mean, I have to go back to that first episode. He says one word. He arrives. He acknowledges the police officer in this this tower, this projects area, which is known for drug dealing. <laughs> he just says officer and just stares up at the tower. He knows what his job is. His job is to protect. He's been hired to protect the territory of uh, Avon Barksdale, who's about to go off and serve a, a prison sentence because of his criminal activity and dealing drugs in the area. So he's been hired to hold this territory to make sure no other dealers from the east side or wherever come in and try to take over his territory. And so I had to go by that. He's, he's a man of few words, and when he does speak, he speaks very precisely. You know, it's very, very precise. And he speaks with incredible confidence. 
<laughs> and you spoke with enough enough confidence to uh, take that role on and be memorable in it. Yeah, it was it was a shock. It was really surprising to me. I mean, I was just playing for three episodes because <laughs> I could pay some bills. Mm-hmm. Because you work in New York off Broadway, um, off Broadway, which is principally what I'd been doing at that time. But the pay wasn't great. <laughs> there, was a, there were many a show where you made more on un, unemployment than you took home from working on a play all week long. So it was just, at, as I saw it at that time, an opportunity to, uh, to make a little money, uh, to kind of catch up, to, ease, to take some of that stress. Uh, were, uh, about worrying about how to pay your bills and your rent and things like that. Take that stress off. And they just kept giving me nice things to do. And so by the time, then when they said they were bringing me back for the following season, I went, oh, okay. So they're serious about it, and they they wrote these great scenes for the character. Hmm. But I never, even after finishing it, because I remember Michael Kenneth Williams who played Omar, he says, aren't you going to L.A.? And in my mind, I was like, for what? nobody cares about this character he's not a regular he's simply a recurring character I'm going you're a regular you go into people's homes every week so people know Omar you know people know Stringer Bell and Avon and and all the other characters because you're regulars I'm I'm just kind of recurring Uh, you are in a musical comedy now called The Prom right so uh, did you go after this part did you say this is going to be mine did you no, it was the director whom I had worked with on a previous musical, Book of Mormon, the last musical I had done, and which I thought would be my final musical. He contacted me out of the blue to come in that he wanted me to come in that day. He wanted to talk about this role and this musical. I mean, they had been working on it for a few years and had had a production down in Atlanta at the Alliance, and the character was one way and cast a different way. Actually, it was a Caucasian actor who did this role that I'm playing now. But they came back he and the creatives came together and said that wasn't working, that they needed to change the role and what they were looking to do. And he came up with my name and then threw my name at the other creators and then called me in to talk to me about it. And, uh, yeah, I went and I spoke to him and I met the rest of the creative staff and sang a few bars for them. I'm not even sure that I wanted to do it because I pretty much had had my fill of, of musicals after Book of Mormon. It was, incredible experience. It was a mega hit. I didn't think it could get any better than that. So I had no reason to do another one. But I couldn't say no to my director, who's basically offering me a role. I said, so how do you say no to another role on Broadway? And what's the problem about, Michael? Basically, it, it, it centers on these four older Broadway stars who Whose, who, their fame is fading, basically. And so in an attempt to make themselves relevant again or to raise their profile again, they decide to become celebrity activists. And so basically they, they look on, it, on the Internet to see what's trending that they can get involved in to raise their profile. Um, and they read about this young girl, in Indiana, this young lesbian who wanted to take her girlfriend to a prom, to which a lot of the parents, led by the PTA, objected to because she's gay. 
So the courts then get involved. The courts are brought in by my character, uh, Mr. Hawkins, the principal, who contacts the state's attorney because he feels this is a civil rights issue. It's a civil rights case that they can't discriminate against her, can't tell her she can't do this. So what ends up happening to get around this court order, the PTA and parents met and created two proms, a fake prom for the lesbian student and the official prom for all the other students. And so these celebrity activists read about this, come down to try to help her. But really, they initially come down basically to raise their own profile by attaching themselves to this worthy cause, but it's, it wasn't about them. It, was, it wasn't about her, the young girl. It was mostly about them. But during the course of the play, they learn about themselves, and they learn how important this is and that it's actually about putting other people ahead of you. And so they, along with my character, Who's the set principal? things right, make, the make things right. It, yeah, my character, the principal of the school, set about making it right for this young girl. How does your character sort of, or does your character evolve at all? Well, my character, um, I don't want to give too much away, okay. <laughs> he, he basically becomes a fan of, of one of the bigger stars, Gotcha. Of the four, okay. he has he's known of her reputation here in New York, uh, on Broadway, and he becomes a huge, huge fan, and they become close during the course of the musical. And if you had to choose, you said you 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 are doing this musical, but musicals aren't your favorite. Um, why not? Well, I'm not. That's not my training. I, I didn't. I'm not. I don't consider myself a musician. I mean, there's there are training programs for people who are specifically interested in in musical theater. I went to Yale as a, a classical conservatory type training is what I went through, and so I expected to be doing the classics or to be doing what I what I like to call talkies, <laughs> no, <laughs> no musicals. Um, and so I've, I've kind of ended up in, I haven't done that many, but I, I feel that I'm sort of an accidental, I accidentally ended up in some musical theater performance because people found out I could sing. Sing, they, they, they keep calling me <laughs> to do that for them. And because, yes, and, and, and bringing up the dancing, I, I don't, I, I'm terrible. I'm terrible <laughs> you at choreography. You are not terrible. They would have kept you on book I'm morning. terrible at choreography. <laughs> it gives me such anxiety because you, you know, you know, there are people who dance. Right. I mean, even the kids in this show, they do it so well yeah. that you actually convince yourself you can do it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's that kind of, when you're seeing athletes or watching the Olympics or something, people doing things so well and so effortless, you know, it's so effortless that you believe you can actually do it. <laughs> so wait a minute, you want me to sing, play a part, and move my body? Woo! Wait, <laughs> wait a minute. It, you know, and that's the thing. I mean, it's a challenge, and it was wonderful early on when I was younger. <laughs> this is another one of those challenges to see if you could do it, and yeah. just, that sort of thing. And you realize, being back in this, it's like it's so many moving parts to pull together. It's an extraordinary thing to pull all of that together because you're acting in a scene and then suddenly some music starts playing because you've got a song coming up. Mm -hmm. And then there's dialogue interspersed between um, the music and you have to time your dialogue to fit within the bars of music so you come in at the right time. So, and then there's the dancing and the counting. 
<laughs> counting and the moving. You know, acting sort of reminds me of like juggling four different size things, like a knife, oh, yeah. a ball, and an egg. Oh, yeah. And you have to do it all so smoothly. Can I ask, Michael, what's more important for an actor, skill or luck? Skill. Skill, because definition of luck uh, that I've read about a long time ago and, that, and I believe is, is when preparation meets opportunity. And I think I quoted to you before, Whitney Young may have said it is better to be prepared and not have an opportunity come than to have an opportunity come and not be prepared. So you, you must have the skills, particularly if you want longevity in this business. I've, uh, I, I know for a fact it's not just my talent, but because of my craft and the strength of my craft and belief in the craft is what's kept me working pretty much and making a good career as an actor. Uh, being a successful working actor, I mean, not star, not celebrity, but a successful working actor, and made a good living because of craft, because I've been able to step into different genres. I mean, as I said, right now I'm sitting in uh, a musical comedy. Just three months ago, I was doing Eugene O'Neill. And before that, I was doing... And the Iceman Cometh. Iceman Cometh. And before that, I was doing, uh, a few months before the six three or four months before that, I was doing sort of an outlandish, well, not outlandish, but a very sort of stylized creation, new creation or a retelling of the George Orwell 1984 by some British directors uh, and writers. I was doing that, and prior to that, I was doing August Wilson. So the point is, I wouldn't have been able to step successfully into each of those different worlds and very, very different genres if, I, if my craft wasn't strong. Mm. So I've been lucky, but the luck has come by way of being skilled, That's being able work. to do it. So people will say, let's get Michael, just as with the musical, let's call Michael Potts. No, let's bring him in here. Now, you talked uh, a little bit about uh, being in the Iceman Cometh with uh, Sir Denzel Washington. Sir Denzel Washington. Um, you are now going to be the Denzel Washington Chair in Theater. You're joining the uh, Fordham Department right. uh, Department faculty as, as, as that position. And yeah. um, actor Josh Gad, who worked with you in Book of Mormons, called you a teacher by day and a Broadway star by night. <laughs> so <laughs> is that an accurate description of you, and what will you be bringing to the students yeah. at Fordham? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I guess Josh <laughs> got that right. I'm always, I always shy away from the term star because I don't know what that is or how to make a star. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm Broadway actor. <laughs> I'm a Broadway actor. Um, star, I'll, I'll let somebody else to, de to decide that. Well, he decided uh, it for you. Okay, well, I'll take it. <laughs> can take I'll take it. it. Thank you, Josh. <laughs> Thank you, Josh. But, yeah, what I'm hoping to bring to the, the students at Fordham is, is just what we're talking when you asked me the last question about uh, is it skill or is it luck. And so what I'm, I would like to impart to them, and I, I had a class on Monday, and I, was, I, I pretty much was basically saying this, like, guys, your skill has to be good. You have to respect what you do. That means put in the work. You know, acting is easy, but it isn't. <laughs> acting is hard. Acting is very hard. You have to know what you're doing. You have to become an incredible storyteller. You have to capture people's imagination. And that takes craft. You have to learn how to be a great storyteller. 
along with all the other attributes you might have, your natural abilities, your natural physical appearance and things like that, or your comic timing and what have you, but you need to know how to become an incredible storyteller. And that takes training, just like any other art. It takes training. It may not look like it in our age of Insta-stars, Insta-fame, and Instagram, and uh, yeah. Uh, it may look like you don't really have to have, and you know, and I don't want to disparage the Kardashians, but it is true. <laughs> it's an indication. Yes, you can become a celebrity and make millions of dollars by having no discernible talent. Mm-hmm. But you're, if you're going to train, if you're going to spend that kind of money, you have to be serious about it, and you must put in the work because I believe that's the only thing that's going to give you any kind of longevity. If you really want to do this, and this is really your bliss. If you're looking for something else, this may not be it. But even if you don't end up being an actor, these skills apply to any, any, any occupation. The ability to speak, the ability to listen, the ability to inhabit your body and your space, self-possession, confidence goes a long way in any, anywhere, <laughs> any field. I'd like to thank my guest, Michael Potts. He's currently starring in a production of The Prom at the Longacre Theater in Manhattan. I'd also like to thank my producer, Andrew Millman. You can like Fordham Conversations on Facebook, you can follow us on Twitter, and catch up on shows you've missed with our weekly podcast. For WFUV's Fordham Conversations, I'm Robin Shannon, leaving you with Michael's infamous song from the Book of Mormon. In this part of Africa, we all have a say whenever something bad happens. We just throw our hands to the sky and say, Hasadiga Ibowai. Hasadiga Ibowai? It's the only way to get through all these troubled times. There's war, poverty, famine. But having a saying makes it all seem better. There isn't enough food to eat. Hasadiga Ibowai. People are starving in the street. Hasadiga Ibowai. Hasadiga Ibowai. Oh,